uh, thinking about the church. And so we've had creation, things are good. Decreation with the fall, brokenness. We looked a little bit at Abraham and Israel, uh, the kings, uh, Jesus. And now uh, we are going to look more at the church's life. So I'll actually be focused, at least for the first 10 minutes, on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. So here Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, uh, and he's going to talk something about his own ministry, kind of defending his own ministry, um, and, and you see the theological framework by which he understands his own ministry, and I think by extension we can understand our own calling as Christians. So um, to me this is, this is like the best, what, seven, eight verses um, on um, what it means to be the church. Uh, so this is, if you remember the first couple weeks, we thought about the lenses that you might see the world through. Uh, Paul is here giving some helpful lenses by which to view the world. So I'll read out of the NIV. And I'm going to take this uh, verse by verse, and I'll point out one thing um, in each verse. I used to say per verse, but then I started hearing myself, and I had to stop saying that. Um, so uh, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. So I, I like that Paul starts out here. One of those uh, primary ways that uh, we operate as Christians is we are compelled or controlled or shaped by the love of Christ. So that direction is important. We don't act a certain way in order to earn God's love, but we act in response to God's love. So... Uh, if we get that backwards, if we do good to make God love us, we are missing out on part of the beauty of Christianity. We do good because God loves us. This is that pay-it-forward mentality. Uh, and when Christians speak of love, Paul, Paul um, roots this in concrete ways. This is cruciform love. What kind of way does God love us? One died for all. Uh, this is sacrificial love. How do I know that God loves each and every one of you? Because Christ died for you. So, um, first thing that shapes us as Christians, Christ's love compels us. Verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, who, for him who died for them and was raised again. So, number one, Christ's love compels us. Number two, we are to no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. This does not come natural to me, and I'm guessing not to many of us either. Uh, we tend to think primarily uh, in self-focused ways. We're not to hate ourselves as Christians. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's implied we love ourselves. Uh, but nonetheless, our priority is to be for Christ. And remember, Christ means king. Elsewhere, Paul and James, another early Christian leader, will refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. Uh, they, they have uh, taken on this identity as servants of the king. It's as though Paul wakes up and asks himself not, uh, how can I kind of do whatever I feel like doing, but maybe add a little Christian flair to it. But rather, he wakes up and thinks, how can I serve Christ today? Not in a, ah, oh, I've got this terrible taskmaster um, who's just always guilting me, but rather, this is the one who has loved me and given his life for me. How might I serve him today? This doesn't happen by accident. We don't default into this. This takes intentionality and practice, and I have only made baby steps uh, along this way. 
uh, but I can say this is the way uh, that we are to progress. Uh, next verse, 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. When Paul says we're not regarding him from a worldly point of view, I don't think he's saying um, material, um, and we're supposed to think in kind of immaterial, spiritual, heavenly terms, but rather, um, like the um, Common English Bible translates it, we don't think according to merely human standards. In the first century world, to the Greco-Roman people he's writing to, that's also going to be made up of people in the Jewish, uh, Jewish faith, human standards might be like judging people based on their age, where older is higher status than uh, younger, based on their gender, where male is seen as higher status than female, based on possessions, based on power, based on ownership of land, education. So that's how you judge someone by human standards. Um, but Paul says, look, we don't regard Christ that way. If we, if we held Christ up according to the human standards list, uh, he's not going to uh, meet those standards that the Greco-Roman world operates by. He was poor. He was crucified. Um, he apparently didn't own land um, and, and so forth. No, we have learned to put on a different set of lenses. We view Christ differently, and we view each other differently in turn. Um, so if we follow the logic of the passage, if we know that Christ died for us and for one another, uh, then we also know that we cannot gauge people based on shallow criteria. Who is worth loving? We don't play that game as Christians. Or I should say we shouldn't play that game as Christians. Because we know the ultimate truth is that those shallow standards do not matter to God, and the deeper standard is what Christ has done, and that should shape how we view them. My guess is, for some of you, uh, it's easier to believe this about others. Yes, God loves everybody else, but I know myself, and I know my brokenness, and I know my habitual sins, and I'm not sure that that applies to me. And I think we are taught to not only view others that way, but to allow that same uh, to come upon ourselves. Uh, and of course, this means that as Christians who are wearing these glasses, we cannot be those who, um, who oppress, who marginalize, who objectify. Uh, that's just bread and butter, standard Christian ethics. Because we recognize the dignity of all humans, we can't do things that uh, go against that. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So in this class, we've talked about um, how there is something breaking in, a new reality breaking in. We've uh, used the language of something like now and not yet, or already not yet, where, um, again, if we think about that, that map that we have of things were good, things got broken, uh, we look forward to things being wholly restored. When Christ, through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, he has brought a, a new reality into the world. Uh, and this new reality we can call something like new creation. Uh, there is a new level of restoration and reconciliation happening. Um, and so we are participating in that. So our lenses that we view, who are we? We are those whom Christ loved enough to die for. Who are you? You are those whom Christ has loved enough to die for. Therefore, through these lenses, I don't regard you, or I'm not to regard you from human standards or myself that way. Uh, and I believe that something new is happening in the world. And rather than trying to uh, swim against uh, this new current, I'm seeking to get in it. What might new creation mean? Um, I think it's hard to pin this down into one thing, but 
Uh, we're already seeing something like new identity, who we are in Christ, new community, no longer uh, Jew or Greek, slave, free, <coughs> male, female. Uh, there is a new kind of bond that is possible. Um, and some sort of <clears throat> new humanity as the Spirit of God dwells in us and is enabling us to be what we couldn't be alone. All right, so we're halfway through this. Uh, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We'll come back to this uh, uh, ministry of reconciliation idea in a second, but for right now, the fifth point, uh, we have been reconciled to God through Christ. Reconciliation, uh, we might define as restoring broken relationship. So through Christ, um, we have been restored to the Father. The implication here is that something was broken and that we couldn't fix this ourselves. This is one of those Christian lenses that we wear. And this is one that um, is going to go against the cultural uh, grain. Uh, where most of us, I think, operate, or most of the culture operates from a sense of which we can fix ourselves, we can do enough, or we're really not uh, that bad off. Um, but uh, Christians recognize that, no, we can't fix this ourselves. We need someone uh, to reconcile us to God. Not because God hates us, but because we carry around brokenness and guilt that we cannot uh, fix on our own. So, verse 19 God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So, uh, here we have uh, that sins are not counted against us. Um, this is maybe the primary message. I don't really need to say much about this. I don't think too much. I think uh, in most evangelical-ish churches, we, we get the idea that, uh, that we have sinned uh, and that needs to be forgiven. Well, I should say... That has been standard. Uh, there is a kind of new wave, I feel like, working its way into the church where there's a denial of the reality of sin. Um, and so you have the, the, I don't know, old regime who recognizes sin, and then you always have something new that's going to challenge what's standard. Um, and so as I, I tend to, to highlight the importance of how God's salvation is not just spiritual, not just dealing with sins, uh, but also is, is physical and social, um, but I also recognize that, that sometimes the pendulum can swing too far, and uh, it leads to a denial of the reality of sin and the guilt it produces. Uh, and Paul reminds us that sin is a big deal. Uh, sin brings brokenness into our world, it brings guilt, uh, and we don't discount sin. If we deny the reality of sin, uh, then we deny the need for Christ to have come and die. And we as Christians cannot do that. We take the crucifixion seriously, and we take sin seriously, and we take our own inability to fix our sins seriously. And by doing so, we recognize all the more the beauty of what Christ has done for us. When we realize our broken condition, the love of God, where he sends his Son uh, to uh, save us, then we're in a better position to understand uh, why, verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So here, and then back in verse um, 18, I believe it was, uh, we have this language. We are Christ's ambassadors, or we are, in verse 18, ministers of reconciliation. Who are we as the church? Uh, as we understand who God is, how he views us, what he's done for us, uh, the move then is to live that out, to continue his work. 
We are servants of Christ. As I said earlier, this is how Paul defines himself. To be servants of the king, and what the king is about is the ministry of reconciliation, then what does he give us? That same kind of ministry of reconciliation. This is who we are to be. This is to be um, uh, what is guiding uh, our practices, what we are seeking to be about. So uh, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Christ is reconciling all things. And so his body, um, who he has given his Holy Spirit to, we as his body are to be doing that ministry of reconciliation. Things were good, socially, physically, spiritually. Things got broken, socially, physically, spiritually. The law is like stage one in bringing social, physical, and spiritual uh, restoration, but it's very tentative. Christ comes in a new creation, something new, a paradigm shift has happened. And where are we in this? We are those who are continuing that work of expanding this kingdom of physical, social, spiritual restoration as we serve uh, our Lord uh, as in the way that he uh, served us through love and peace and kindness and bravery and pursuit of justice and so forth. And finally, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, Chew on that one for a while. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think it's Irenaeus who said something like, Christ became what we are in order that we might become what Christ is. Somehow, incarnation, God becoming flesh, enables new creation. Christ shares in our brokenness so that we might share in his wholeness. Christ became sin, and we became the righteousness of God. Two angles on righteousness here. Uh, We tend to think of righteousness, and we tend in Churches of Christ, I should say, to think of it primarily in legal terms. Now we are made right with God, legally forgiven. That's that's perfectly legitimate way of uh, of hearing it. But there's also um, another piece to that where righteousness is understood as something like the rightness or justice of God. Uh, so as we become the righteousness of God, we not only become those who are declared right or forgiven, but we also are those who are seeking to bring the rightness and justice of God um, in the world. Um, so that is part of our mission as ministers of reconciliation. So that's a little on Paul. Let me run through those eight things again, and then I will um, give you a quick five-minute uh, thing on Acts. Christ's love compels us. We no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. We regard no one according to human standards. New creation has broken into the present world. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. Our sins are not counted against us. We are given the ministry of reconciliation as Christ ambassadors. For we know that Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that's, uh, that's Paul's way of telling this in the letter to the Corinthians. And so um, I thought I might show you how Acts narrates a similar reality. So uh, um, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, writes story, history. Uh, and so it's kind of fun to see how what Paul is doing um, in his letters, uh, we can see um, the church uh, embracing um, in the narrative of the book of Acts. So before Jesus ascends uh, into heaven, he tells his followers that they will receive the Holy Spirit and they will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, so the Spirit is necessary for them to carry out their work, as we saw last week. Uh, 
uh, and that their work of bringing restoration is no longer uh, going to be as focused just on the Jewish people, but it's going to continue what God had promised Abraham, that his descendants would bless the nations. So this restoration uh, movement is going to work its way out. So the church takes on um, the mission of Jesus. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke, uh, or excuse me, the, in the, the book of Acts, written by Luke, is the things that Luke describes Jesus doing in the Gospel of Luke, he then describes the church doing similar things in the book of Acts. And so he's training, I think, his readers to realize what Jesus was about, the church continues to embody. Uh, so just as Paul can say something like, um, Christ was reconciling us, therefore we're ministers of reconciliation, uh, what Luke is doing is saying, here's how Christ lived his life, here's how the church is doing similar kinds of things. So we have Jesus um, healing the lame, and his followers heal the lame. Jesus sharing meals with the lowly, and his followers sharing meals with the lowly. Jesus speaking truth against injustice, which leads to his persecution. His followers speaking truth against injustice, which leads to their being persecuted. Jesus prays that God would forgive those who crucify him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, when he is being stoned to death, prays God, hold this sin not against them. So uh, the implication seems to be that Jesus' followers are imitating Jesus um, uh, by extending compassion, practicing restoration, and pursuing justice. Um, as the church experiences a certain degree of persecution, Acts records this really interesting line. I like the paradox here and, uh, because I think it sticks with us. No one dared to join the church. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. No one dared join them. More and more people were added. You hear that? It seems as though what, what Acts uh, is, is teaching us is something like, when people realized uh, that um, the expectation to be a Christ follower uh, might lead to persecution and was going to lead to a change of life, people didn't enter that uh, half-heartedly. No one's daring to join, in parentheses, uh, with a kind of, you know, quasi-commitment. However, because those who were joining were doing so wholeheartedly, uh, it couldn't help but have a kind of magnetism that was drawing people in. So no one dared to join half-heartedly, and this serious uh, mission and this new community uh, was so, um, so filled with sincere believers that it was drawing people, and so no one's daring to join, and yet they were growing in numbers. Uh, a powerful paradoxical line there. Last notion that I'll leave you with is uh, Kevin Rose, uh, he's a, an Acts scholar, says, we might think of what we have in Acts as new culture, but not a coup. So his little pithy statement is, new culture, yes, coup, no. That is, the church uh, is carrying out a new culture uh, in the way that they are treating others, uh, and the way they're thinking about who God is and who they are meant to be. But Acts consistently records that they're not, uh, they're not uh, seeking to overthrow the government. Uh, so you get all these speeches where people are brought before the governors and stuff. This is not a coup. Uh, but nonetheless, because they are uh, practicing new cultural norms, wearing different lenses, treating people differently, it's, it's, it's creating tension uh, in the larger Greco-Roman world. Uh, and so we see new culture, yes, uh, but they're not going about it in a violent military overthrow, but rather they're going about developing this new culture in ways like Jesus did, through peaceful, um, compassionate, 
uh, servant-hearted uh, means. 20 minutes, right on the dot. Okay, so um, <clears throat> one way to think about our identity as the church, or what are our tools for discerning our identity as the church, we could say one, it is typified in Israel's history. Two, it's rooted in Christ's ministry. And three, it anticipates the new community, the eschatological community. So to unpack my words a little bit here, by saying it's typified, I'm mostly thinking that we can look at Israel's history as a type, right, that um, tells us something about who we are, what we're undergoing. Um, so we can recall that God called Abraham and his descendants to be uh, God's people in the world, arbiters of a new creation, uh, a priesthood, right, a priestly people. And we, uh, like them, are called into a similar sort of role. We're supposed to be spreading Eden throughout the, the earth, and we're supposed to play this priestly, priestly role that Israel was to play. As we remember, though, Israel chose the way of the nations rather than being a light to the nations. Um, it managed to do that some of the time, but it, you know, what we see in the history of Israel is that we can't do this on our own, right? We need grace. We need... Uh, God working in and among us for us to be able to do this work. So um, anytime we start to get too big for our britches, we should look at Israel's history, essentially, and realize we need God. Okay, so it's rooted in Jesus' ministry. I think one way we can think of this is that uh, what, what Josh and I have been saying is that we have to continually bring our sense of identity and purpose back to what Christ was doing in the world. So I love that, that image of us being, um, our ministry is one of reconciliation. That's what Christ was doing in reversing the curse of sin, evil, and death. Um, so that is our ministry. We are filled by the same spirit that filled Christ for that purpose, which is remarkable. And the, <clears throat> the same spirit that fills us, that filled Christ, is moving us into the future, towards the eschatological community, the eschaton, the end when God will make all things new. Um, right now we know that things are being made new. That's still an ongoing process. Um, but we are to be the arbiters of, of that in, in many respects. And um, we don't know how God is at work beyond the church exactly, but we know that God is at work through the church. Uh, by virtue of the Spirit's presence in and among us, we are Christ's body in the world. So um, we are to be doing the same work that Christ did, participating in curse reversal together. We could think of it that way. Um, so <clears throat> to say a, a little bit about um, how this might look, if we're trying to figure out um, what does it mean then, uh, you know, to think about this in terms of just the, the stuff that we do together regularly. Well, we can think about it, I think, through our various ministries and the way that we're at work in our communities and the world. 
Um, but what about our life together? What about the ways we come together and, and what we do? What's the theological meaning behind our worship, for example? Um, the, you know, the kind of various practices that we always return to as Christians. So I think um, it's worth saying a little something about the sacraments. Uh, and for us, that means uh, baptism and communion, right? Lord's Supper. So I think in thinking about this as a way of, of discerning who we are, we could also think about the sacraments this way. Um, <clears throat> so if we take baptism, for example, and first I should back up and say um, what sacrament is, I mean, is a Latin word, it means something like a pledge or a mystery. Uh, it can mean either one of those things. At its broadest level, sacrament is God giving us grace through the material world. It's God encountering us through material, material reality. And the ultimate sacrament is, of course, the incarnation, Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate expression of God encountering us through the material. So we can always take, I think we should always take what we're doing as the church back to Christ, how it's rooted in Christ's ministry, the same thing applies to the sacraments themselves. If we're trying to understand what they mean, what their content is. So uh, the content of our baptism and the content of our celebration of uh, the communion meal is always going to be Christological, defined by what we see in Christ. So when we think about then um, baptism, for example, uh, what's happening in, with Christ's baptism in Luke 3, 21 and 22? Um, what we find here is that Jesus is participating in a communal event. Uh, he's, he's entering into the waters because he is joining in at the people who are committing their lives to God's purposes in the world. There's, this is a renewal movement, right? Um, so this is, the, this is the baptism of John the Baptist. It's all about uh, Israel making ready for the reign of God. And so um, what we see is that, of course, Jesus isn't being baptized for forgiveness of sin. He's being baptized because he's entering into this commitment with these people, with the community itself. He's renewing a community. So for us, when we follow Jesus into the waters, that is about forgiveness of sin for us because we are sinful, because we are fallen. Um, and yet, it's like Josh keeps saying, this is bigger than just our sin. It's about the renewal of all things, of, you know, on all these levels, socially, physically, and morally, ethically, right? Um, so uh, we can think about the fact that it's about, for us, it is also about entering into a communal commitment. Um, it's about obedience to the Father as Christ was being obedient to fulfill all righteousness, is what the text tells us. Um, Christ is identifying with sinners here. He is the sinless one, but he's sharing in the communal reality. And he follows that all the way to the cross. So our baptism is something like our ordination for ministry, and it's us saying we are willing to, to follow the way to the, to the cross, knowing that there's resurrection on the other side of that. Just kind of picking what I want to share from my notes here. <clears throat> This is also a moment for Christ of his uh, anointment in the Spirit. As you remember, at, right after he comes out of the waters, the dove descends, and, and the Father says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, we are all participating in that reality as well. We're invite, that's a moment of inviting the Spirit into our lives in a, a fuller way, a way to inspire us for ministry and fill us for it. And then there's also this sort of 
eschatological texture to this. This is moving us towards the future. Um, in the story of Christ, we can see baptism moving us toward the table, the communion table. Um, and what happens there, again, is a moment of participating in community. There's, there's this moment of service. There's a moment of breaking bread together and saying, uh, this is a sacrificial moment. I'm anticipating going to the cross. And yet we will, we will be together again. We will celebrate this again. So uh, what we find in the communion meal is another kind of pattern where we can see ourselves entering into this with Christ. Uh, we gather together for a meal. Um, we go out into the world into sacrificial service, anticipating gathering again, coming back to the table again at the end when all things are made new. Um, so in a sense, uh, the communion meal, why do we return to it over and over and over? Well, it's because it is the meal for our journey. It's what, it's what kind of feeds us as we keep doing this at work in the world, right? We, we gather together, we have this moment of communion, and then we go out into the world into mission. Then we come back together to celebrate this again. I'm always anticipating that final meal when we will no longer have to go out into the broken world, where the world will be made new. Um, so we'll talk a lot more next week about the eschaton what this what this means okay so we're going to unpack this a lot more Um, but we wanted to just kind of set the tone for what is the church now kind of what is our task what are we doing so I would just say um, one key takeaway is if we're going to be disciples of Jesus we are we have to participate in a communal reality it's all about the community um it's not just a me and Jesus, me and God, I get it by myself. It's about joining a people, a redeemed people, ultimately for the sake of a redeemed creation. So it's not, it's, it's the individual matters enormously, but in view of the community, right, and the way we're going to participate together. So in the assembly, uh, we gather together, I would say, to listen to the word of God in scripture and in testimony, and we come to the table And the last thing I would say is I think um, we should think about the table as the event, not the sermon. Um, In Protestant congregations, historically, there came to be this big shift and focus on the word itself of the sermon. And I've always, since I've studied this stuff, I've always thought that's really kind of unfortunate because the, the focal point of our gathering is the table. It's how we commune with Christ and one another. It's about being a people sent shouldn't be a focus on one person who gets up and talks to us for 20 minutes, right? As, as wonderful as that moment can be for empowering us for our mission, uh, that's not the focus. So I think that's one thing for us to kind of think about. Um, okay, so I'll leave it there. We wanted to have some time for discussion. So Matt, you might want to kick us off here. <coughs> Um, listening to, to Josh and Lauren made me think about some things, and I'm going to throw those out there to see if they, if they help you at all. One of the things that, that Josh closed on was, was that reference to the fact that Christianity brings, I think you put it, it's a new culture, it's, it's not a coup. I think that makes more sense if, if we understand what Paul's audience knew in their bones about how their society was organized, how their social world was built. Um, 
Remember, Paul is speaking to audiences that are, are steeped in, in Greco-Roman culture. And the Greco part, the Greek part, is the deep base. And the Roman part is, is sort of the icing on top. But I think this might help us understand why what Paul was preaching was both was radical and sounded to some people really great and to other people a lot more like a coup. In the ancient Greek world, it was understood that no one is equal. Right? Some people are better than others. And, and the way the ancient Greeks figured out who was better was competition. I can't spell it more. <laughs> Competition, people going head to head. Um, in the ancient epic poem, for example, when Achilles, the great warrior, goes off to war, his father tells him, be the best. Be inferior to no one. My students usually hear that as, oh, that's what my mom and daddy told me, do your best. I said, no, that's not what he told him. He told him to be the best, beat everybody else. Now, that advice was what every parent gave to every son in the ancient Greek world. It was a competitive world. They invented the Olympics, remember? They cry when they get a silver medal because they didn't get the gold medal. Comp they couldn't help but be competitive. They invented the term all things in moderation as advice because they couldn't. But competition mattered to them because they believed that in competition, humans could see whom the gods favored. And it's the winners. Competition reveals which individuals are superior. And for the Greeks, honor meant the, uh, the public recognition of individual superiority. And when they saw whom the gods favored, they did the natural thing. They gave the winners stuff. <laughs> Because that's what those whom the gods favor deserve. Right? It's also the mark of their superiority. Right? There's always a trophy for the Greeks, but only one. And if you have the trophy, or the cows, or the slaves, or whatever it is they give you, that's the sign that you're better than everybody else. And that's what gives you status. That's what makes you better. They also understood that in their world, everybody is in a relative hierarchy to everybody else. Another piece of advice was always, know who's better than you and treat them accordingly. The other side of that coin is, know who's worse than you and treat them accordingly. Now, it makes sense to treat the powerful with respect because bad things happen if you don't. But it also made sense to treat those lower than you, slaves, for example, with disrespect because things will fall apart if you don't. If your slaves start to think that they're your equals in that culture, society breaks down. So recognizing differences was crucial to living right in the, Gre the Greco-Roman world. Status was everything. It was always relational. Everybody was better and worse to somebody. And that was the way their society was organized. It determines who gets to eat first and who goes last. It, gets, it determines who picks first. 
and who picks last or who doesn't pick. It determines who beats and who gets beaten. That's the world Paul is talking to. And when he comes in and says, there's no more slave or free, there's no more Gentile or Hebrew, there's no more male or female, that's what he means. Is that way we used to live, the way we live right now in Corinth, the way we've organized everything is over. The church represents that new creation, that new order, which in some ways sounds wonderful, especially if you're on the bottom of the old order. But if you're on top of the old order, it sounds like a recipe for revolution. It sounds like a coup. And that's why I think the church has always been um, a threat to established orders, where orders are established on some people being defined as better. Because the church says, we're all sinners. Christ died for all of us. And now we're all Christ. And that's hard to get our heads around, even today, I think. The second question I had was about sacraments, right? And you, um, when I teach in my class, the medieval world, I, we talk about the seven sacraments that are traditional in the church. And you brought up today that we've got two, baptism and communion. Um, uh, uh, the definition I like, a sacrament is, is where what we do here in the material world meets God. There, there are things that we do that are more than simply doing what we do. When we drink the cup and eat the bread, we're not just having a snack. It's a snack, so to speak, that's, that touches the divine and becomes something else. That's what a sacrament is. My question would be, did you leave out marriage? Because we often talk about marriage as a sacrament, even if we're Protestants. And So are, are there really only two? Are or do we understand sacraments sort of differently? So one way to think about I can see my weapon, it's really too. Um, the, the way sacraments even work at all is that all of creation is in some sense sacramental. That means that all of creation is a material means by which God can work in our lives. And so uh, the church itself is sacramental in some sense. Um, and then there are all these kind of important moments in Christian life that are considered, that have been traditionally considered sacramental. They have this kind of rich sacramental texture. So um, because I'm a good Church of Christ girl, I say that um, the ones we find in Scripture are the ones that are most important. So uh, baptism and the communion meal are the ones that are given, that have the most sacramental texture, so to speak, right? It's where we have... Uh, divine commands around them and we see that there are these key moments in Christ's own life um, and yet we can also see the way in which the sacramental reality permeates our life so marriage is certainly a sacrament in that sense it's a way of encountering we, we only learn something about you know I would say the commitment of God to the church through thick and thin through the, the kind of lifelong commitment of marriage for example so there's ways in which we can see, and then, you know, anointing the sick is a sacramental moment. We can see all these things as sacramental. But I would say they're, they're the two. And even in the Roman Catholic Church, they recognize baptism and communion as, like, these sacraments. Right? So. Maybe another way we encounter it in our tradition is, at least at Otter Creek, is, is when we uh, appoint new elders. And we go through that ceremony that we call the laying on of, 
the laying on of hands. Not that it's magical or miraculous in that sense, but that it's a moment, it's a thing we do physically and materially, but it's but we imbue it with meaning because we understand that by doing this, we're saying something more than, um, that's a nice quote, we're saying this represents something else. Right. But in that sense, this brings me over to Josh. I'm wondering if, if that's true, then when we choose to gather together on an appointed day, especially on Sunday, if, that, if even the act of gathering and sitting beside each other in a pew and praying together and singing together, would it be fair to call that sacramental? Maybe in the lowercase s way that, that Lauren was getting us thinking. I think what, what Lauren was talking about with sacraments um, is that there's something that they have potential. And so just the mere act of doing it doesn't necessarily make it sacramental. No, it seems as though when we treat it as an end in itself or we, we take it out of what it's meant to be about, we are um, we are losing. So I think it's totally possible to get together and worship and do nothing that would really count as sacrament. I think it's also possible to come together uh, in the united body of Christ where barriers are broken down and we're seeing each other in this kind of new way and we're a people of mission where it is sacrament. Might be how I would think about it. So, kind of. All right. I don't want to hog all the question time, but I guess I did. So, sorry. <laughs> so, right. Well, next week we're going to cut Josh out, so we'll have a lot of time. Next week. But thank you all very much for being here this morning.